You're listening to the Loose Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Sims, and this is episode 113, the story of Smile, the American Sergeant Pepper. I sat down for this episode and had a conversation with co-host Anthony Campolo, and he makes a very strong case that the album Smile, an unreleased work from 1967 by Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, uh, is perhaps the great American album. And we discuss uh, why that could be and what kind of cultural impact it could have had had it been released in the summer or the second half of 1967 as intended. And could it have in fact been an American Sgt. Pepper being released in the same year as that seminal album from the Beatles. And also we talk about how now that so much of the material has been made available to us in the last few years, that most of the album has now been released, could it still have a huge cultural impact? So if you know this story, if you know Brian Wilson's work, if you know Smile, I think this will be a fun conversation for you to listen to where we sort of hit all the high points of this story. If you don't know it at all, then I think you're going to be astonished at how engaging and and remarkable this music is and uh, surprised, at least if you share my reaction, surprised that more of us don't know it and that it it isn't more widely uh, influential and enjoyed and listened to. As always, you can find uh, all of our podcast episodes archived on the website at loosefilter.com along with various writings and uh, curating of great content from across the web. You can find the podcast feed either at SoundCloud or you can subscribe through iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, drop us a line at loosefilter at gmail.com. Without any further delay, here's the story of Smile. So why should we talk about Brian Wilson? Uh, Brian Wilson is a really cool songwriter. I really like his work because he does a lot of different things harmonically and melodically in terms of his music that a lot of other songwriters weren't really doing at the time. And we're talking about the 1960s, exactly. Like the middle, just just starting to get into the late 1960s. Uh huh. And so he was like, yeah. My sense of him is that he was always he was a composer who was writing rock music, you know, and and he was always trying to stretch the boundaries of of what the medium could do and and like what it should be. 
yeah, he wasn't satisfied with just these simple four chord songs or you know twelve bar blues, things right. like that. Okay, so so Wilson Brian Wilson was the key creative figure in the Beach Boys, which was mostly a family band. Yeah, him and, and a couple brothers. Him, a couple cousin. brothers, a cousin. His dad initially managed it, uh-huh. managed them, and and they were the the clean cut wholesome version of rock and roll of of American yep. rock mm-hmm. and roll, right? And they were the 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 probably the most famous version of the California surf rock. Which is funny because only one of them had ever surfed, I well, think. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so yeah, so they were, when, when, like, I think of the Beach Boys, and probably when most people think of the Beach Boys, I kind of think, like, boring square. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it no. wasn't the rock that was interesting. It was not rebellious music by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. Right, especially when you hit, like, 65 and you've got, you know, the Beatles going all acid and Velvet Underground. And, uh-huh. you know, I mean, everything that's sort of really starting to happen in the real sort of yeah, what we think of as 60s rock music. Right, and the uncensored world of grown-up rock music. They're this just queen, clean sort of, uh, uh, you know, corporate, <laughs> marketable yeah. boy band but almost. With, with this album that we're going to be talking about, Smile, it's could have rewritten the history of the Beach Boys as we know them. This would have been a crucial step in terms of them being thought of the way that the beat the Beatles are thought of. So this could have been like their Sgt. Pepper yeah, or... Exa- exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what it would have been. Within the Beach Boys, they started out with this kind of conventional... So let's listen to that. Let's set the stage. Uh-huh. So this is how the Beach Boys, and, and probably in most people's imagination... Right. Uh, this is what they sound like. What are we going to listen to? Uh, we're going to listen to Surf and Safari. Let's go surfing now, everybody's learning how Come on a safari with me This is totally the music that the cool kids, the popular kids, would be oh, listening yeah. to, right? So, like, I would not have been, like, <laughs> like I'd have been like, ah, the Beach Boys are stupid and square. And yeah, no, like, it's like it's like your parents' rock and roll. <laughs> okay, it's like if you were listening to rock and roll at the church youth group, this would be mm-hmm. what's coming out of the speakers. So, so unbeknownst to most people's conception of of that, and probably a lot of listeners at the time, there was this like really massive creative ambition and imagination inside of that square package which was specifically brian wilson which was brian wilson personally brian wilson as a musician i always say that individually brian wilson is much more talented than any of the members of the beatles what makes the beatles so special was how they worked together and how they combined to create this musical force this band brian wilson wasn't lucky enough to have three perfectly simpatico musicians to work with yeah exactly and 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 the management and production but Brian Wilson was the one-man package because he was able to write the music and orchestrate it and then produce it as well. He was producing a lot of their work as well. So he was one of the very first full-package musicians in terms of what he could do for the band. And it's an interesting parallel, right? Because the the Beatles started out as, you know, mop-top, uh, suit-wearing, uh-huh. love-me-do, I-want-to-hold-your-hand, yep. safe. <laughs> and they were able to rock, make that transition to this more arty 
seen as more prestigious. And it was their their success as a bland commercial band that allowed them the creative freedom Uh starting 1966 and really 1967. They had the ability to do whatever they wanted. Exactly. All the best technology that was at their fingertips. Okay, and so Brian Wilson, starting with the, the track Good Vibrations, started using the the Beach Boys' mainstream success to give him room to move. Right. Well, this would have really started with Pet Sounds was when he was stretching their music to a whole different level because that's when he started writing for practically an orchestra. He would have the Wrecking Crew, which is a group of session musicians that played on a lot of Phil Spector's music. And so you would have string section and... Uh, woodwinds and brass and the whole gamut of all those instruments and he would work that into his songs and it gave it a much more rich sound Beatles started to pick up on this and you talk about how they discovered counterpoint through Brian Wilson. Oh yeah. I love that story. Well, well famously uh, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney considered Brian Wilson really their only kind of peer exactly in, in the realm of rock music and vice vice versa. And so they were always looking at what the other was doing as kind of a, a competition, you know, to, to, yeah, they both had a great mutual respect for each other and were trying to one up each other. Exactly. And the story that I read, I was researching a paper years ago was that, uh, when pet sounds came up, John and Paul devoured it, you know, they were Uh just blown away by it and felt like it really set the bar as far as what could be done with, with, with not just like a rock song, but like an album. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like a song cycle, more exactly. So yeah. than an album of just singles, which puts Brian Wilson out on the leading edge of uh, a concept album. Uh-huh. You know, so it's not just musically, compositionally what he's doing, but conceptually, you know, is also really groundbreaking and influential. But uh, the story goes that they listened to Pet Sounds and, and Wilson. Um, uh, uses a lot of counterpoint in in the songs, particularly because he uses all this orchestration, like you mentioned. And John and Paul were kind of blown away with that. And they went to George Martin. George Martin was the one telling the story in the book uh-huh. I read. And they said, what is this in this song? And, and they, so they played him part of a song from Pet Sounds. And George Martin said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? <laughs> and John said, well, where there's like two melodies, but they're playing at the same time. And George Martin said, oh, you, uh, well, that's called Counterpoint. And they were yeah, like, oh, no there's concept. a name for that? Yeah. yeah. How does that work? Can you tell us how that mm-hmm. works? So he, he kind of gave him a mini, he like, sat at the piano and gave him a lesson about, like, yeah, well, this is how. Yeah, I gave him a short little theory lesson. <laughs> what counterpoint is and how it works. And then uh, uh, the album that they were working on and produced kind of as their answer to Pet Sounds, of course, mm-hmm. was Sgt. Pepper's right. Lonely Hearts Club Band. And that's the first Beatles album where you hear any songs with counterpoint mm-hmm. in it. So there's, you know, there's you can set these works side by side and hear you know, one album comes out and six months later, you know, the other produces an album. Yeah, you can hear the direct progression of the ideas that they were dealing with and how they were discovering these new technologies also because there was this explosion in the studio of what you could do and new thoughts of how to work with recorded music itself. Right, so let's, um, uh, do you have a good example from Pet Sounds? 
that we could to show like the orchestration, maybe a little bit of the counterpoint. Yeah, definitely. He was really most like a poet more so than I think any of the Beatles. Yeah. And the fact that he was really just trying to bear his soul. But also he worked with a lot of other writers and lyricists. And I think that has a really big effect on the Smile Sessions because he works with uh, Van Dyke Parks, who's a songwriter and a musician too, and a ranger who's worked with all sorts of musicians going back to Frank Zappa all the way up to now, like Joanna Newsom. Right. So, so we should say the the smile sessions. That's actually what this conversation is about. Yeah, the smile sessions. Because yeah. smile. Yeah, it's important to say that smile as a thing will never truly exist because smile was never fully completed at the time. Okay, so smile was is could have been the. Beach Boys album that followed Pet Sounds. Exactly. Okay, so we were talking about Pet Sounds. We just listened to God Only Knows. Uh-huh. Pet Sounds comes out. Weird, way out of the box, super influential, mm-hmm. but actually pretty successful. Somewhat. It was successful, but not to the extent that the Be- the Beatles were being successful. And the fact that it was... They're actually they're pretty big in the UK, but in America... It was their American sales their American that always sales were, were... weren't doing as well as they thought they should have been doing. I mean, they were still selling tons of records, but they were being compared to the highest selling artists around. And they wanted to go back to their old aesthetic. Okay. They thought that they were going to be able to... They? Who's they? The rest of the band? The rest of the band and the label and basically everyone except Brian Everybody Wilson. Everybody except Brian yeah. Wilson. So, so Brian Wilson gets to make Pet Sounds. Uh-huh. And that's his vision and that's his... Because he had stopped touring with the band. There was a point, I think it was in 1964, when Brian Wilson is just fed up with the touring lifestyle, sort of like the Beatles did too, and he wants exactly, to step back yeah. and just work on the recordings themselves. He wants he was, to compose recordings. Exactly, because that's what he was doing. He was producing their albums. Exactly, And that, that's exactly what gave us Sgt. Pepper and everything the Beatles uh-huh. did after it and yeah. all of its influence. By spending time in the studio. Because they said, let's make an album and send that out on uh-huh. tour, which is where they came up with the little metaphor of the band and all the little theme of the album. So, okay, so Wilson has those kind of ambitions. So he gets to make Pet yeah. Sounds. So he gets to make Pet Sounds, and Pet Sounds is amazing. But what he really gets to do and after that— And Pet Sounds that, inspires Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Sergeant Hearts Peppers. Club Band, right? Then he starts working on Good Vibrations, and this uh, is The where single Good the Vibrations. Single, just the song, and this is where things really get crazy because he spends months in the studio, in various studios, actually, like over a dozen studios, recording— huge amounts of instruments and different sections to create what he was going to call like a pocket symphony. He wanted to condense the work of a symphony into a song, into a single. This is 1966 we're talking yeah, about. So he takes months to record this one single. Yep. This one single. One now, single. In, in, in the mid-60s, as frame of reference, your average hit single was recorded and finished, produced, ready to go in under two hours. And he's taking 
not not a day, not two days, months. Months. And he spent like almost half a million dollars in today's money. That, yeah, that's true. In today's money, yeah. In, today's in, in that day's money, I think it was like 75000 is what the estimates okay. are. He's, so, yeah, a ton of money and a ton of studio time. But it was absurdly popular. It went to number one like that. It got the success they were looking for. Okay, so this is important. This is pivotal. Uh-huh. So he gets to make, Brian Wilson gets to make pet sounds. Uh-huh. And everybody but him is like, dude, <laughs> this is not what we want to be doing. Uh-huh. And the sales were soft. And so he has this pressure on him. Right. You've got to, we need something that's more marketable. A lot of material, commercial, commodity, commodity pressure. Uh-huh. His response is to go the exact opposite yeah. direction. Pull up in a studio, spend thousands for months. upon thousands I'm going to spend dollars. more money than anybody's ever spent yeah, on a single. astronomical amount. Not only am I going to meet you half, not meet you halfway or whatever, I'm going to run in the other direction. <laughs> yep. I love this. And it I was love a this. wild success. And, and then he was, yes, like this phenomenal, I told you so. Yeah. Okay. So what, and vi- okay, so good vibrations, right? I was reading about it before we started recording. It's, it's um, and I, I mean, I knew this from listening to it, but it didn't occur to me how um, atypical it was in the Beach Boys output. It was innovative exactly. not only as a rock song, but it was like compositionally even though Pet Sounds was pretty groundbreaking and so forth, there was nothing in Pet Sounds like this. Yeah, exactly. This is where he really went off the rails to a crazy extent because he started thinking more like a collage artist. He started thinking about recording different sections in different places that would create specific moods and atmospheres. So he's really sculpted. Now, he that's profoundly intuitive about the medium. Yeah. Particularly at the time because exactly. you have, what did he have? He had four tracks available to him. He would have had a four-track recorder. Yeah, most likely. Uh, because uh, artificial double-tracking, Jeff Emmerich invented that for the Beatles in their Pepper Sessions in the first half of 67. So he wouldn't have even had artificial double-tracking. He wouldn't even had the fake eight tracks. Yeah. He would have been layering multiple four-tracks to get all these layers, right? Because he does these densely layered vocals that... Strangely enough, or like the signature sound in my brain uh-huh. of the Beach yeah. Boys, no, that's, but, yeah, that's, but no, that's, that's the it. departure, and nobody else in the band wanted it. It was <laughs> right. weirdo, right? And the other thing is like the abrupt, like like unprepared modulations. Uh huh. Yeah, because like it was just direct sections chopped up and thrown together, so it was very jarring. Some of the transitions and some of the work, but it was about creating a more expanded medium. So it's good good vibrations is more literally what we would describe as music concrete wearing the clothes of a song. Yeah, essentially. I mean, I mean Dave and I talked about this a, a a while back on the Sound to Signal episode that essentially any recorded music should be properly defined as concrete music. <laughs> uh uh so that's all we've been making since yeah. we invented <laughs> recording really. Uh-huh. But in the sense that music concrete is a specific style of creation that that collage that sculpture method of making Mm -hmm. uh finished uh oral or or sonic or musical product uh so really he's 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 creating he's he's creating an art piece in the form of a song yeah created that's what he did and people loved it yeah and people loved it and it was amazingly successful and it's still super catchy you know everyone 
knows that song can sing the you right. know the main melody. Right. If I could compare the profane to the sacred, it what it, the connection it makes in my brain because I'm super weird is a Brahms symphony. Brahms, mm-hmm. you know, it's this deep, rich, substantial, you know, works compositionally speaking that you can look at and think about and and dig down and it rewards that and and uh but but they were they're cast in these modes that were popularly quite recognizable and and you know would have been immediately well, they still are, but immediately appealing to listeners then. Okay, we got to listen to some of Good Vibrations then. All right. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her head I hear the sound of a gentle On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air Picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I'm backing up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I change my mind. I, I I don't want to compare it to Brahms. I want to compare it to Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Yeah. Right? So he got a bunch of criticism, and he gave them the form of what they wanted. Because they're singing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a singing about a surfer looking at a girl in California. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like and, a Beach Boys song yeah. in some weird way. So if you were, like, musically dumb and didn't really pay attention, you'd think Brian Wilson gave you some surf rock. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be like, finally! Just like Stalin when you heard Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. That's proper Russian music. Uh-huh. Never mind that it was, you know, just openly tragically him. ironic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so... So just the the beat, the, the the rhythm track, sorry, not the beat, the rhythm track that sets up at the beginning is like this melange sound, right? It's a, uh-huh. it's a create it's a composed sound. It's like harpsichord and uh uh uh, uh keyboard and something else on top of it. And yeah, there's it's strings, four or five things, yeah. strings uh-huh. in there. Uh, and then there's it wasn't a theremin. We looked this up earlier. Yeah, right? it's um it's an electro theremin made by Paul Tanner. A- and, the tannerin. Yeah, and he actually, the creator of that instrument, plays it on that session. And that's session. the sound that goes, boo Yeah, that famous sound. Yeah. Made everybody want to go out and get a theremin. Actually had a little uh-huh. mini theremin, Which is the craziest uh, instrument ever. Most people, when they hear the sound, they recognize it because it's that classic 50s alien sci-fi noise. Right. That's how everyone knows and, it. And the Doctor Who theme. Yeah, and the Doctor Who theme. But what it actually is, is it's a box that produces an electronic signal that you manipulate by moving your hand in the air in front of you it's almost looks like magic and the fact yeah. that an instrument like this exists just blows my mind <laughs> yeah and so there there are two directions you, mo- you you move your hands on the x and y axes uh-huh. and one hand manipulates amplitude and one hand uh manipulates uh frequency yep one's pitch and one's volume so you can do articulations and make it louder and softer and then do the notes in the other hand and your hand shape can affect the resonating harmonic series on the frequency side, so you can actually manipulate timbre a little bit too. It's a super cool instrument. Yeah, it's one cool. of our earliest electronic instruments, and this is where one of the places that it really broke through into uh-huh. the, yeah. the popular memory. Uh, now everyone will always it'll be immortalized right. in that song. So here we have this like 
really innovative, really brilliantly put together rock track wearing the clothes of surf rock. Uh Massively successful. So now Brian Wilson gets the permission he really wanted. Right. And this, now we're finally to what we're actually talking about this uh-huh. episode. Yeah. <laughs> this, that was all prelude. And we're talking about the album Smile. Smile, yeah. But Smile. it's all important because it's all part of the overarching. It's about the, the narrative of Smile. Because Smile as an album does not and will not ever exist. Because be- it was never released. Because it was never truly finished or released. We don't want to bury the lead. We're, uh-huh. not, we're not just talking about, this is not like a, one of the greatest rock albums of all time podcast. It's... What the popular imagination thinks is probably one of the greatest rock albums of all time, (laughs) if we could ever hear it. Right. If we could ever hear it. Until about four years ago, that is. But, good vibrations, boom, knocks it out of the park. What happens? He wants to create the ultimate He, Brian Wilson, wants to create... Brian Wilson wants to create his magnum opus. He wants to create the ultimate American work of music. He was very much of the idea that there was all this British influence coming in affecting rock music, and he wanted to go the other direction and bring in more of an American influence. So traditional American sounds like, you know, country music or doo-wop or barbershop, anything that jazz, was in the culture. Anything jazz, that he could yeah, get, yeah, American vernacular Distinctively music. American vernacular exactly, music, or yes. even topics of the, you know, American homeland and things like that. So he gets with, uh, Van Dyke Park. Right, and, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Who is worked with now? Who is Van Dyke Park? What other work would we know? Of um, he worked with uh, Frank Zappa at the time, and he more recently orchestrated Joanne Newsom album, which is very beautiful. Um, he worked with Van Dyke, and they did these really intense writing sessions, and it's part of. So this album has a lot of like parts of the story that are like mythical and very like repeated over and over again. One of them is that he got his piano into a sandbox and they wrote music in this like piano sandbox for okay. two months. So, so <laughs> these two guys are working on this album and they're just going crazy. They're letting yeah. themselves run free yeah. and like really like this is pure. We're going to realize our ambitious artistic uh-huh. Vision. We're gonna get real weird with it. And I just, you know, this is. I have such an affinity for, regardless of the results. I I happen to love the results, but Brian Wilson's ambition and his 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 vision, what was coming out of his imagination, is so phenomenal and so <laughs> exciting to create substantial, large scale American art music in vernacular modes sort of made up of vernacular modes. Yes, yeah, he was so way beyond what almost any other musicians were thinking of doing at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's like a bald eagle wearing an American flag t-shirt driving a tank. I mean, that's like <laughs> yeah. so artistically, like everything, the idea of it, the stuff uh-huh. it's made of, the hugeness of the, amb- the stupidness of the yeah, ambition exactly. almost, right? Like like yeah. putting it like, like we're going to take the piano and we're going to put it in the sandbox. And the, I mean, when really, when you've got a grand piano in a sandbox, you're at least 50-50 you're not finishing this album. I mean, for anyone who's seen the movie Walk Hard during the period when he goes through his whole 60s phase and records a super ridiculous album, that's all about Smile. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> After watching this podcast episode, go watch that movie and you'll see that section. It will make 
total sense to you. <laughs> if you didn't catch the reference, that's what's going on. So they're they're just they're they're just doing all kinds of stuff. What other do you know? Any other interesting uh, stories? Now, uh, okay, so the, because the album never got released, these stories become mythical. Right. They I heard they hung a piano from the Empire State Building and floated up under it in a hot air balloon and yeah, recorded right. it when they poked it with a stick. You know, whatever. You know. So so. D- have any of these ever been verified? Has Brian Wilson ever told, like, yes, we actually did put the piano in the sandbox. That it, happened. That, that it was, def- we took a, some acid first. That's an <laughs> yeah. important part of the story. But okay. The piano in the sandbox um, is almost definitely true. Okay. So that's definitely part I of I love that. that. Yeah. I'm happy that's true. That makes me happy. So, yeah, there, as we'll go on, you'll will be more different tidbits of various truthness and non-truthness, but we'll, we'll get to them. <laughs> It'll as, all be as, truthy. Yeah, tr- truth-esque. <laughs> Truthiness. Okay, know. so they're doing all these things. So he was really into, um, uh, and Lennon and McCartney were doing this with Sgt. Pepper and, and, and going forward. Well, all, I mean all of them and George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, their engineer, really experimenting with how, with composed sounds. This idea of, that's an idea worth, I think, kind of unpacking a little bit because uh-huh. a, a lot of people think, well, what is, is it just, it was because they took acid, that's why they put piano in the sandbox? You know, like, why would you do that? Yeah, I, I was like... That seems really, really weird, right? I mean, art people do weird things. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a really good reason because a piano in a sandbox is going to sound a really specific way. And you could say it makes him think, you know, of childhood playing in a sandbox. He has and that may influence what's coming out yeah, of him. Yeah, your creative yeah. juices because creativity exactly. is such a hard to grasp thing. It's not a concrete, you know, two plus two equals four. No, it's like either emergent or it's a synthesis of different things. And yeah, exactly. And you never know what's going to ring bells and, you know, make associations. And yeah. So sometimes or, doing the weirdest, most non musical related <laughs> thing could be exactly what you need to spark that right. right. Creative spark at the right time and place. But also because Wilson was fascinated with sonic environments, sound environments, right. With that was altering it, sound the, sources, the studio sounds, the room sounds. That was such a huge part of what he was going after with these recordings. Okay. So he, he and, and Van, Van Dyke uh-huh. are working on smile, working on smile. They spend uh, two or three months writing all this music and then they get into the studio and this is when the fun stuff starts happening because this is when they're actually working on the album recording and they spend months in the studio this is at the same time that the beatles are working on sergeant pepper and the tracks that will be like strawberry fields so uh, first first half of 1967 exactly yeah so 66 they were second half of 66 they wrote the album then throughout end of 66 through 67 they're recording it so if this album had come out, it would have been right around the time of Sgt. Pepper. Exactly. It's it's direct contemporary in terms of if you look at the two bands and their progression with their albums. No wonder. it was. It, I mean, regardless of the music itself, of course, it's we could have had an American Sgt. Pepper. Exactly. <laughs> what would that have done to the 70s? And that's <clears throat> such a crucial part of the narrative is how it was this ultimate lost opportunity of an album. And the lost influence and cultural uh-huh, impact. Exactly. And just the way they would have been viewed, the way Brian Wilson would have been viewed, and the way his life would have gone, if you think about like when you start to look at what happened to him throughout right, the 70s Because it's, 80s, not, it's, it's not a happy story yeah, no, for it's, him it's coming very out sad. of Smile. And there's actually there's about to be a movie coming out that looks really good with Paul Dano and John Cusack playing 
uh, Brian Wilson. That's oh, wow. Gonna, a biopic? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's going to be a big narrative that people are going to be talking okay. more about soon. <laughs> okay. So they get into the studio and they start recording Smile and what happens? It's it's just crazy. The the musicians, the studio musicians, they love it. They're having a blast because it's all this very weird stuff, but it's very high level too because Brian Wilson was a consummate musical professional. Like he knew his stuff. He was a musical genius and everyone who worked with him knew it. <laughs> so And so they the, loved collaborating. Yeah, so with they him. loved getting to work on that. So it was great for the musicians, but the Beach Boys were having trouble with it because they thought it was just very strange. It was very unorthodox, and the lyrics really. And what am I going to sing them. about? Like how good that girl in the bikini exactly, looks? Exactly. Yeah, because the lyrics were surreal. They were strange, and they just provoked some of the members. Like Mike Love actually had a moment in the studio. He's talking to Van Dyke, and he says, "What does this mean? Like this lyrics? Like what does this mean? This doesn't make any <laughs> Explain sense." Explain <laughs> these words to me. Exactly. Yeah, like that. They had those kind of conflicts in the studio. So, what, what do you have an example of the lyrics? Uh, yeah. So here's the lyrics to "Surfs Up." Uh, Another surf song. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure this sort of only about surfing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's straightforwardly about surfing. <laughs> That's what the title leads me to believe, Anthony. Of course. I, so. A diamond necklace played the pawn, hand in hand some drummed along, to a handsome mannered baton. A blind class aristocracy, back through the opera glass you see, the pit and the pendulum drawn. They haven't talked about surfing yet. <laughs> nope. I don't That's a think... lovely lyric. Yeah. That's a lovely lyric. Read it again. I want to, Can I hear that again? Sure. A diamond necklace played the pawn, hand in hand some drummed along, to a handsome mannered baton. A blind class aristocracy, back through the opera glass you see, to the pit and the pendulum drawn. All right. Now, in context, what's that song like? The diamond necklace played the pawn, hand in hand some drummed along, walk to a handsome man at baton. A blind class aristocracy, back through the opera glass you see, the pit and the pendulum This one got released around 1971, so it was about four years later. So we got pieces of the yeah, album. Yeah, we got pieces of the album. When did they finish recording? Around the middle of 1967. Yeah, May of 1967 is when the recordings totally ceased. And, and that's, uh, yeah, June 67 is when Sgt. Pepper came out, right? Yeah, uh-huh. So it was right so around it would have been. Time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> oh, uh, this is like, you know, George Gershwin dying at 39. What could have been? I, I know, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, uh, Surf's Up. We were talking about Surf's Up. So the, but the, the album didn't come out just because the studio was like, we're not going to... There was there was a lot of reasons that the album wasn't ever released. The biggest ones were internal pressures from the bandmates and pressures from the studio not just to make it less weird, but just to have it done because Brian Wilson was very particular in terms of his overall vision, the whole Right, right. And it. because he was doing so much on the composed sound end, the production uh -huh. end, yeah. that takes a long time. Yeah, it ended up being... Especially was, in 1967. Ugh. Right. Tape. Yeah. It was a mess. <laughs> Cut it. Tape, literally 
use adhesive exactly. and tape it together. The, the physical but, aspects of dealing with all of this music. And again, only created. only four tracks. I mean, and, it's exactly. Not, it's not like you can you know just go in the studio and lay down thirty two tracks running and running up it. to the very limit of the technology available to right. him. So that was exhausting a lot of resources and a lot of time. So surfs up. We got a few years. At, we 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 got we got smatterings of smile. Yeah. We got an album called Smiley Smile in 1967. Smiley that was the smile. first aftermath of Smile was that album, and you get Smiley Smile. I mean, and it's it's an interesting album. You know, by itself, it's still pretty totally cool. not named yeah. by some marketing intern, <laughs> right? Debbie, you're you were a teenager recently. What should we call this album? I like Smiley Smile. That's what it is. So Surf's Up was Sorry, featured. I don't mean to offend Debbie, the imaginary teenage record company intern yeah. in 1967. She is so mad at you. She is. Well, yeah, but she was kind of ditzy. So what was really cool is Leonard Bernstein did a CBS special about the rock revolution because it was this big thing by yeah, 19... This is in 67? Yeah, 19, yeah, probably 1967, and he was wanting to spotlight some of the artists of the time who Bernstein thought were working at the forefront of the rock music and popular music and he brought in brian wilson to play surfs up and to do a solo piano and vocal version of it to show what he thought was someone really creating these new form of music right and and reaching toward uh uh a, a level of substance a level of depth right that that starts to then ring bells that bernstein as a composed music a uh -huh. concert music person attracts him yeah he starts getting on that wavelength and he's like oh what's what's this guy over here doing right right he's talking through rock uh -huh. but i like what he's saying because bernstein was always very up on the time I, one of my favorite oh, stories sure, is sure. when he went to see um ornette coleman's group and the bass player charlie hayden was playing the bass and at one point he was like who's this guy because there's some guy who was right up next to his bass and up to his f-hole trying to listen to his bass playing and ornette coleman's like that's Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> Keep playing. That's a good thing. He likes it. Yeah. So Bernstein features Surf's Up. So let's give that a listen. All the costly bow, the music all is lost for now to a muted trumpeter's swarm. was surfs up so he was really expanding his sound his harmonic palette his use of more instruments and he was really stretching his music so this was great for everyone who wanted that to happen but at the same time the label was really fighting for them to go back to their old sort of sound and they were even because they wanted to make money exactly yeah. even at the time they released like a greatest hits album of all their old stuff so in the popular consciousness that's what the beach boys were releasing and what people were like oh this is the new beach boys album thank so, goodness they got away from that pet sound stuff exactly yeah 
So it was, it's very frustrating to see how much resistance there was. And I see this as one of the ultimate stories of art and commerce in the music industry just butting heads. Because this was literally one of the most high-level musical artistic creations that could have been happening at the time. And it's a clear, it's a clear example of how all of us are vastly poorer for it. No matter how much money the Beach Boys could have made... Uh, uh, even if Brian Wilson had been like, okay, sure, fine, let's mint, let's print some money, uh, and just done yeah. it, um, w- we are all vastly poorer than we would have been had they released the album and it had had it been given to the world, had it been allowed to get into our brains and our right. consciousness, and let and, the people judge it and see if they wanted it or not, and who knows, uh, you know, who it would have influenced and what sort of uh, other future creative work it would have sparked, right? <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think it's 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 pretty clear because in in 2011 we finally got Smile. Uh huh. So it it comes out five years. Yeah, about 45 years later, we finally get the Smile session. So after years and years of this album being very mythical, it was bootlegged. So there's people who were able to hear songs from the sessions and bits and pieces of it, but it had never really been compiled and released officially. And this is where it's hard to say that this is Smile because what Smile was envisioned as was much more complex and multifaceted and had more collage elements and more little sound effects and stuff you wanted to do and interstitial movements. And it really just, this basically is what was recorded that could be pieced together in the most logical way is what we have with the Smile sessions. But it's amazingly cohesive. Like what we have is such a treasure <laughs> like listen to the smile sessions if you have not heard it you get to hear the whole what he was dealing with and just the sounds he was dealing with and what he was going for it pretty much all comes through even though it didn't get finished the way he envisioned it you can really see where he was going and how much of an impact this album would have had if it was released at the time what was he doing that was distinct uh uh from what the beatles were doing like in sergeant pepper because with Sgt. Pepper, uh, a few of the things off the top of my head that made it remarkable were it's it, it's it, it, first of all like it's extensive use of the recorded environment, which Wilson was also actively exactly. exploring. The studio as an instrument. The studio as an instrument. The the recorded sound as a layer of composition. So creating sounds that never could occur in real life. Uh, manipulating the sounds that you have. Uh, they were also using the medium to do structural things like on uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, the whirl of the, the fair sounds, Uh right? They cut up the tape and put it back together randomly or the way that they were able to uh, 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 cram together two songs, uh, you know, in a day in the life. life. And and so things like that. I think that they did a really good job of, taking their songwriting approach and adding experimental elements to it. The Beatles were very good at that. Whereas I think what Brian Wilson was doing is he was creating a new musical language entirely. He was trying to get away from even just basic songwriting verse chorus or structure to have these full length compositions that would go from a wide range of styles and would encompass all of the music that exists at our time, all music that is popular or that people listen to or that anyone is into. He wanted to contain all of the world in his music. So he, he wanted to, he was creating rock composition. Exactly. In terms of the scope of his thinking, but he was also quite aware 
that it is an oral tradition. It's a recorded medium. Uh-huh. And that when you're when you're cre- when you're composing music in a recorded vernacular tradition, you have to have a wide embrace. Uh-huh. So you would do culturally, something like you know, in terms of influences and styles uh-huh. and sounds that make it in there. Yeah, so he took You Are My Sunshine and inserts that into one of his songs. Into uh, let's listen to that. What song? All right. Uh, the track is The Old Master Painter slash You Are My Sunshine. What's amazing is how of a piece this is with American uh, maverick, as they, as they call it, uh-huh. or American experimentalist philosophy, right? With Ives. It's very Ivesian. Yeah. Let the me take the— Juxtaposing the, different, just smashing things together. I, I, yeah, I'm not just going to be inspired by folk music or vernacular music. I'm, I'm literally going to the drop thing. it, yeah, or build my composition uh-huh. out of it. Like, had Ives lived in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like, he, I, this may have been the means that he— that's kind of a, you know, uh-huh. a bold speculation. <laughs> but certainly his compositional urges, I think— Yeah, would, they were of a would, piece would, with would each other. fit the technology well. They would have uh-huh. been good tools— for his urges as his, like, uh, you know, think about his fourth symphony, which is this, you know, weirdo Ivesian symphonic music built out of Protestant hymns. Oh, yeah. If he walked into a studio in the 60s, he would have just had a ball. Yeah, yeah. So so Wilson's a- ambition is is of a piece with the larger tradition in American composition. Yeah. He just happened to be working fully in the, the new medium. He also just did a lot of different experimental things with what he was having the vocalists do. There's one track where he has the vocalists even make like animal noises on this track. It's called Barnyard. Obviously, some of the members of the band were a little turned off by the more eccentric parts of the music. I can only imagine, you know, living in the musical world and being <laughs> being an out-of-the-box uh, person myself, uh-huh. uh, how can... <laughs> How bizarre he must have seemed from a conventional perspective. Yep. And how they honestly and sincerely were just thinking, what are we doing? This is nonsense. Yeah, it's a joke. Because the the thing about music as a medium is is that the distance between I love this thing, it's the most interesting sound I've ever heard, and what is this bizarre foolishness like is a millimeter. Like there's a very fine line for most listeners when something different and ambitious will really ring your bell and you'll just go must have more. We've all had that experience. That's how I feel listening to neutral milk hotel, which is one of my all time favorite bands. It just hits that certain really weird spot. Who who was the band neutral milk hotel? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And you just like, this is, they made this just for me. This is amazing. Uh huh. There, you don't have to go very far to, this is the stupidest music. Ever. Who would even think this is worth listening to? What are you doing? 
So I can imagine this, you know, the other guys in the yeah. band. It was it was an uphill battle for Brian, I yeah, would imagine. It's like, when are we getting to Surf and Safari? Are we yeah. two? Surf and Safari 2. You know? Surf and more Safari. <laughs> so what else is great about, about this album? So he tries to keep going with this collage aspect, and what he wants to follow up Good Vibrations with is the track Heroes and Villains. And this is where it, things start to run amok. As a single, so he he yeah, as a, the next single. Okay, so run amok. So we're we're okay. So we're back on our timeline. We're jumping uh-huh. back in our time. So good vibrations comes out artistically ambitious. We're in the clothes of conventional Beach Boys. Fools everybody into listening to this innovative track. Loving it, hugely successful. He starts to get re- to to work on his own unique vision for Smile, and the first single is Heroes and Villains. Uh huh. So this is what's going to be the lead single, even though Good Vibrations is on was going to be on Smile. That was sort of created separately. So this was the just first... like Strawberry Fields exactly. in between Revolver uh-huh. and and Sergeant So this Pepper. was going to be the lead single from the Smile sessions, and this was released before the album was finished. Um. Yeah, I think that this was right around when they were having troubles with the album, so they're still working on it, but they need something to release, and they keep telling Brian they want him to finish something, so he has this so they can release this single, but it underperforms, and this really crushes Brian because he thought that this was going to be where everyone was going to see him as being on par with the Beatles, because he wanted that respect. He wanted to be seen as that level of an artist. Well, and he knew he knew what he was yeah, doing because he mean, was. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> wasn't just throwing random stuff at the yeah, wall. I no. mean, and that's you know any any sincere uh, a creative artist, you have to believe in what you're doing, right? Yeah, cause and you're, believe that it's worth making, right? Because you're really getting your hands on the fundamental creativity and aspects of you know masterpieces and art. It's such a creative thing and requires such specific mindset to do and commitment and commitment and and if you don't believe in especially when you're breaking new ground i mean particularly when you're 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 breaking new ground because you if you don't believe in it you're not going to persuade me to believe in Uh it there's going to be something in the fabric of that work that sounds tentative and half-hearted or or unsure and it may come across as insincere or or the ideas because you don't have enough commitment to them because they're not weird enough. Uh-huh. They don't work, right? So he he really commits to it and he releases hero and heroes, heroes and villains. And unfortunately, it only gets to I think number twelve on the charts. Oh, failure! Yeah, just the worst. The worst. And it just kind of got a lot of confused reaction. <laughs> this is what? Yeah. Just very uh, let's let's confusing. listen. Let's confuse our. This is heroes and villains. Fell in love years ago with an innocent girl from the Spanish and Indian home full of the heroes and villains. Once at night, Katrina's playing light, and she was riding in the rain of the boats that eventually brought her down. But she's still dancing in the night, unafraid of what a doodle do in a town full of heroes and villains. That first 
first verse is, you know, I could see that selling. The first verse, it's a little, uh, it's stylized. It's sort of like a stylized, you know, doo-wop, 50s doo-wop. Yeah. Right? It, still, it still sounds it's like still the working. Beach Boys, you working. know? Like, if you play it yeah. to people now, it, I don't think it sounds like that out there to people. Weird, but, a little weird, But at the time, but, if you think about what you would have heard, it would have, people just would have said, what, what is this? This like, is a little weird. But then the second verse happens. And, yeah. and well, first the slide whistle shoots out, at yeah. the end of the first, and you, that's the first little signal that uh, this song's not going to stay in the box it appears to yeah. present in. And then there's that weird chromatic line that's added on the second verse that's not quite in the key. Uh huh. That starts to signal because <laughs> we're coloring outside of the lines at yeah. least. And then the song just takes a left turn into what in the world just happened. I can only imagine what. Your typical American listener. I mean, I mean, you talk about cultural impact. If you'd even gone a year out where people had really had time to absorb, yeah, because then you would have had Jimi Hendrix and and the first Pink Floyd album and the first Doors album. They were right on the cusp of all of that, right? But especially because the single starts out (laughs) so normally, (laughs) I can only imagine how. What is what is not surprising to me is that it didn't sell well. What is surprising to me is that Brian Wilson was surprised <laughs> that it didn't sell well. Yeah, I mean, he he created it. I mean, it's a great track, and that's the, was the problem with the track. album is that there wasn't but, really singles like that. The only other close one would have been "Surfs Up," and that still isn't a very good lead single either. And of course, you mentioned too. Had the album been fully realized, it would have been even more fully composed because yeah, he and Van Dyke wanted songs. It the, was yeah, a they piece. wanted they wanted to create all this interstitial music, right, exactly, so that it it was one through composed. Yeah, it work. would have been like an opera almost. Wow, man! <laughs> and we only have little fragments yeah, of what they were thinking about yeah. for the interstitial, right? That was yeah. never realized. There's in they're worked way. into some of the tracks as you hear them. You'll hear different on the smile ideas, sessions. yeah, on the smile sessions because. What he did in 2004 was record a new version of it. So this is where Smile started to become more of a concrete thing. In 2004, Brian Wilson starts to make a comeback. His mental health is improving. He's gotten a group of musicians together because now you know he's a national treasure because the Beach Boys have been around forever, and he right, now right. finally gets the recognition that took him so long to finally get. So now he has this, you know— totally awesome band that can play whatever he would ever want to play right, you know? right. and nobody's going to give him flack about staying in the studio right. for a while yeah. yeah so he records a brand new version of smile in 2004 which is great you know it's very cool to sort of hear that but it's not what you hear on the smile sessions because it's not the recordings from that time it doesn't have the beach boys vocals because that's what it was when it doesn't Wilson. have all the shortcomings and imperfections uh-huh. that made them make the choices that they made yeah too, you exactly know? i mean especially working with with um uh recorded in the recorded realm the limitations of of the time and place yeah, you're actually making it in time that he was making are music. integral to the 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 work itself. I mean, it's it's a product of a specific time and place, and the really great versions of it continue to sound appealing, you know, decades later. Uh-huh. But yeah, I can see how re-recording it removes an important layer. Yeah. So you got to hear all of, the composition. You got yeah. to hear the compositional aspects of it, but you didn't get the sound and the. Feeling the composed of, yeah, sounds exactly, part of it, the, which is yeah. what makes the recorded music such a specific artifact onto itself. Yeah, exactly, and wh- and why it's it's often difficult to reconcile it with the literate tradition of notated composed uh-huh. music. Um, uh, but uh, you know, Brian Wilson's and and Van Dyke finding a way to make them 
play well together in this one. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing why I keep going, oh, oh, it's not it's not just the specific influence, like different musicians who would have been inspired by a sound and taken, you know, more direct influence from it, but the conceptual influence that it could have had to show people you can do this this way. Yeah. You can think this way in this medium. You can make this kind of musical art and offer more than just this narrow band of experience that your typical rock music in 1967 yeah. was designed to offer. It's and a great band of experience. Don't get me wrong, you know, but 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 you 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 can transcend that. You can yeah, and that's why everyone loves Sgt. Pepper because it was this idea of people thought it was sort of like a concept album, which is sort of a misnomer because it was really just two bookend tracks with a bunch of tracks in the middle. Right. It was a but quote unquote. It just yeah. it convinced people to think outside the box and. Brian Wilson was going way beyond that, way beyond way that. Beyond. And it's, of course, I'm going to make I, I make a connection to the concert music world. It's like John Cage. I mean, yeah. a, a, a terrific composer, and and his music, uh, the literal music he he sounds he created was influential. But it's his ideas that are tectonically. Yeah, just uh, entire important. different ways of framing the music and, and how and they thinking think about, about it. You know, I, like I heard John Adams uh, specifically say that as a young composer. Uh, reading uh, John Cage's writings taught him that he could do anything. That mm-hmm. that seriously, no, it's okay. He, that was the phrase he used. I'm sorry. It gave him permission. Yeah. It gave him permission. And and had Smile really hit, what kind of permission would it have given to other folks who had urges? Yeah. <laughs> artistic musical urges that uh, were very unconventional and not supported by the 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 you know financial you know practical framework of realizing it mm-hmm. um uh, so yeah man what what's yeah. another interesting track let's listen to some more of of the thing this track was about the elements he wanted to have a suite about water earth fire and wind and this is the fire one which is i think the most experimental track on the whole album and it is very jarring and it also is one of the more famous legends of the album is that there was a fire like across the street or some building where they were doing the studio and it like freaked brian wilson out (laughs) while he was recording fire because he was recording this song about fire and then a fire happens so they're just all these apocryphal stories about this it's ridiculous unicorn of an album Uh okay strange songs on the album it's such fantastic music i like i don't want that to get lost in all the stories that we're telling and all that's, the yeah that's what i really want to get know, across is that mode of art you know creation or whatever yeah, it became a story and it became this really like 
rite of passage for music nerds and rock history enthusiasts who they would find out about Smile and they would like imagine what Smile could have been. It was like this, you know, everyone wanted to recreate Smile and this is the closest we will ever get to recreating Smile is the Smile sessions. Like we can't do any better than this. And one of the reasons when you suggested this topic, I was excited to do it is because I think it was released in 2011 and I am embarrassed to admit haven't given it a really close it, listening. Like I find it, it strange how many people that I know who are musicians haven't really listened to it. I know that we, I knew that I should, I mean, I love pet sounds and have listened right. to pet sounds long. I mean, yeah. probably my whole life, but, uh, uh, just, you know, kind of like hadn't gotten around to it. Like, how was this not, how did like, what needed to bump this to the when top you like, yeah. Mind? And when you sit down, you see the scope of the story. It's, it's mind boggling. Cause it's so dramatic. There's so much drama to this story right. because it's the most high level musicians from the sixties working against each other and creating this crazy art and then having all these pressures from the band and from the label. And then Brian Wilson having mental issues and just all these things and substance abuse issues that exacerbated one another. And exactly. yeah, uh, uh, and then this great hole where we know there would have been this huge cultural impact yeah. that didn't and then the what happen. If, the what the if, what if, the what if. Man, yeah. we love good what if stories. So this Holy demystifies cow. it. So I can see why now it's people wouldn't be as into they the legend talk about because now there's this. You can just listen to it and it's like, oh, okay, now it's just this album. But of course, this is the harder work: is actually listening to the work and really absorbing it, yeah, and, and, and like, turning it over. What and, would this really have been in the context of the time? And so, what I would like to say in this episode is, is first, I love that the final chapter to the story, at least as far as the work itself is, is that we finally get the album 45 years later, and it really is that good. That's exactly it. It, it lives up to right. two generations worth of hype yeah. and and mythology and whatever. Yeah, there's First a reason all, why everyone yes, was talking about yes, it. <laughs> there's a reason why. And and but secondly, I think that Smile still could have serious impact because Wilson's ambition, uh, uh, artistically, compositionally, not only as a musician but as a someone as an artist who's talking through culture to his fellow people, uh-huh. his fellow citizens, his fellow human beings, um, that there is still a lot. Yeah, it hasn't that, really been realized. It hasn't been realized. Yeah. Right. 50 years later. Right. So it, it still could have that impact. It's like, still groundbreaking listening to it it's now. It's still groundbreaking, and people we really ought to listen to it <laughs> more carefully and think about not just the work itself, but the ideas that inform it, the conception and the ambition of it, uh-huh. and given the tools that are available to us now. Yeah, now versus then. Versus then. And uh, uh, what? how could that be realized today? So aspiring composers, songwriters, other cr- musical creatives who might be listening, what ambition and inspiration could you learn from Smile? Yep. It certainly inspired me. <laughs> uh, and this, let's go out with one more track. What should we listen to before we wrap up? One more track. I really like the opening two tracks because the opening two tracks are both each just a minute long, but they sort of set the stage for the album. The first one is just a pure acapella number and it's called Our Prayer. And then the second one is called G and it's like this weird 50s doo-wop thing that doesn't sound quite like it's 50s doo-wop. G, that's G-E-E as in G-Wiz. G-Wiz, uh-huh. G yeah. yep. All right, so that will that will end our conversation. We will listen to those first two tracks from Smile. And as you may have guessed, we heartily recommend, enthusiastically recommend, that you give uh, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys 
album Smi- the smile sessions is what the yeah, name of the, the actual sessions, released yeah. material yeah. it has the is. album smile and then a bunch more extra stuff there's a really cool track actually it's like a 10 minute medley of just acapella beach boys they just take the vocal tracks oh, wow. and all them it's really cool so you get to hear uh, uh, you get to hear part of the process right? uh-huh oh yeah. fantastic all right so we will leave you with a little bit of our our prayer and g from the smile sessions brian wilson and the beach boys Did, did.